0: Okay, today my guest is Professor Yves Doz. Uh, I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about you as a person. Professor Doz is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Yves Doz is an emeritus professor at INSAT. He's a fellow of the AOM, SMS, and AID. He was the first recipient of the CK Perhalat Distinguished Scholar Practitioner Award by the SMS in 2011. Uh, Professor Does has authored many articles, books, chapters, cases for both academics and managers. He has received many awards such as the George S. Terry Award from the AOM for best book on management. In 2018, he received the best paper awards at AOM's IM division the Kearney uh, AOM Award for Outstanding Research in General Management, and he has served as the President and Vice President of AIB. He also served on the editorial boards of AMR, Jibs, Journal of World Business, SMJ, Multinational Business Review, among others. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, first question, what did you want to become when you were a child?
1: Oh, <laughs> not very original, but... Uh... My, my par- I lived with my parents uh, very close to the Orly airport, which at the time was the only big airport around Paris. And I was uh, watching these constellations and strato cruisers uh, roaring overhead. And I wanted to become an airline pilot. Uh, my poor eyesight put a quick end to that dream. <laughs> so that was only for a few years. So
0: uh, you grew up in Paris?
1: Yeah, I grew up just outside Paris, yes. Uh,
0: okay. And uh, can you remember the first points of memory uh, that uh, domestic versus foreign exist and there's international world out there? there? Can you remember the first moment of awareness?
1: Yes, I I was a kid also. Um, My parents are both French and they were In a way, French domestic, I could say. Uh, My my mother was a school principal, my father was working for the National Railroads. So both of them were were working with very French organizations. Uh, But I I had a the eldest of my first cousins, who was more than 20 years older than I am, uh, had a had a strange job. He was working for the I, uh, how is it called, the, 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 the aviation branch of the UN, uh, the civil aviation branch of the UN. And, and his job was, among others, to go around the world and certify airports. So he would certify airports for safety, their radars, the length of their runways, whatever. Um, and he lived in Montreal, but he would come to Paris relatively often, That he would stop for a day or two and see his parents. And, uh, and, and he would also go and see my parents. And I remember him vividly because he was coming and having dinner with us, and he would have these tales from extraordinary, exotic places he had just been to. And uh, for me, it sounded like big adventure. So that was a very, a very, con- a very strong contrast with my parents' domestic experience. That's how I got, that's how I got international in a sense, our first, uh, first internationalization.
0: <laughs> interesting. interesting. So you, uh, how did you choose uh, to be a scholar?
1: Well. You know, if I'm honest with you, uh, I did not choose. I was chosen. <laughs> no seriously, uh, I, I did uh, I did a management school in France called HEC. H-E-C. Um, and after that, still interested in aviation, I went to work for an aerospace equipment, the uh, plane company, actually the helicopter business of a plane company. And after a couple of years I realized that not being an aerod- not being an aeronautical engineer, Uh, my potential was limited. So I was there, but uh, not too happy. And a phone call came out of the blue from my former finance professor, international finance professor at HEC, saying, would you like to come and work with us on a research project on foreign investment? Uh, And I said, why not? So I went there, uh, resigned from my aerospace job, uh, I worked as a research assistant, uh, then as a very junior, I would not even say faculty, but pre-faculty, less an assistant professor, tutor, or something like this. Um, and, I, and I liked it. Uh, so I realized that being a scholar was something I wanted to do or be. Um, and I still had, I'd already had this international orientation. So that's how I became an IB scholar.
0: But you started with international finance, right? So th- th- you Not exactly.
1: Yeah, not exactly, because it was really around around FDI. And uh, basically, we were trying to do, so far as I recall, we were trying to build some kind of model of uh, market attractiveness for international, internationalizing companies and so on. So, so it was not finance narrowly defined. It was really international business. I see. Internationalization, uh, in a sense. Uh,
0: something that is, on your, that is not on your CV, but uh, people might find interesting.
1: Well, I don't know, except I uh, in, the, in the same line I still keep a I still keep an interest in aerospace, so I go to air shows and when I can, I stop to visit aerospace museums uh, from uh, Cape Canaveral to places. I, I regret there has never been an academic conference in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton is the home of the US Air Force Museum. I dream to visit that museum before I pass away. Well,
0: I, I live in Cleveland. It's not uh, too far away from us. I, I've never been there, but uh, please do yeah. come and I'll take you there. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank visit you. So uh, my understanding is, uh, do you still need uh, to have like uh, 2020 vision, perfect vision to fly uh, the, these private planes, small pipers? Uh? today
1: I don't know. Certainly when I was young, um, you know, if you had the poor vision, that basically ruled, ruled you out. But... Um...
0: Interesting. I know there's a height limit, there's a uh, eyesight uh, requirement obviously, uh, strong eyesight, but I didn't know anything about uh, the private planes, especially with the single engine or uh, two... Uh, yeah, small yeah at some
1: point I was um, I was tempted to try to get a private pilot license, not, not to go for airlines, but just as small, <laughs> small planes. And at the time I was told my eyesight was not good enough. So, but that was like 30 years ago. So,
0: okay. Uh, if you stopped doing what you're doing today and uh, pursued a different career, what would you do? I th- I
1: think I would, I think I would stay with um, I would stay with an academic scholar with a, with scholarly work, yeah? and and uh, I think I'm I could have been a historian. Hmm. Um, I have a lot of interest in history. And in a way, the, the, the kind of process research I do and the evolution of companies over time and so on is not very different from business history or from history. Hmm. Robert Bergelman wrote in, uh, in Jibs a few years ago, there was a special issue on qualitative research methods. And he wrote a very nice piece drawing a parallel between history and, uh, and management process research. Um, I probably also, I definitely, I mean, again, this is, this is a far distant past, but when I was a doctoral student at Harvard, I had uh, Alfred Chandler as a teacher, among others. And, and Chandler certainly had an influence on me. And obviously, at the time, he was this, this very famous and, and, and remarkable business historian who had written this foundational book around strategy and structure and so on. So I was influenced by him. Um, and i think i could i could easily have become a historian
0: about regrets regrets in life things that you should have done you would have done you thought about doing but not pursuing later on any regrets in life
1: i think yes, that's a tough one <laughs> no i i uh, i think i've been. I was too much of a bookworm in a sense. I've been too much, you know, I was too intellectual. That is something that my children have criticized me for saying you were not available enough. You were always, you know, thinking about your books and and your books, the books you read or the books you were writing. Um, So if I I have one regret is not having, is not to have been more available for my children when they were really small. Now I'm a grandfather. So I try to compensate, but it's not the same thing.
0: Okay. Um. Well, what are you most passionate about? Sorry. What are you most passionate
1: about? What, what am your passionate? I yeah. Oh. Um. I think I'm. Um. Um. I think I'm curious about. I'm curious about one thing. I might also have been an investigative journalist, by the way. Uh, perhaps. Um. I'm curious. I'm. I'm curious to observe. Uh. How people work in, in organizations really you know really trying to figure out i'm just i have this curiosity of figuring out an organization works figuring how people relate within the organization uh, it's partly also when i think of history when i read some history books i mean some of them are very rich on that dimension not all but some so it's really figuring out how people work together in organizations um,
0: I mean, this, this is going to be an easy question for you. So say you're stranded on the side of the road. There's a pub, local pub. You go and um, locals meet you. Locals are curious about what you do, what you write about, how you earn your living. Uh, <laughs> how do you explain what you do and the importance of your research to people who don't read uh, academic work regularly?
1: I if- I don't tell them I'm a bookworm. I don't tell them that I uh, study the work of complex multinational organizations. I think I would tell them, I would tell them something, you know, because in a way, when people work together, there is collaboration. So I would tell them really that what interests me is why people collaborate and, uh, and why people don't under what set of circumstances with what dynamics. And I might use some examples, you know, I mean, there are wonderful examples from the US actually around the, the way villagers may band together to help each other build a barn. That seems to be a classic example, but not everyone does it. Perhaps not every villager participates, not every village does it and so on. So, so I would say, why is it that in some circumstances people work together, they work together productively, they work together equitably, fairly, um, and in some other cases, they don't. And, and really, if we start to, if, if we literally go back to Adam Smith, why are organizations existing just to allow people by specialization and complementarity to work together more successfully than they could have worked as individuals. So the very most basic of, uh, the most basic logic of organizations is collaboration. True, true.
0: Uh, you, uh, things that we have Neglected or omitted in IB research uh, or research about firms, research in strategic international management as well. Um,
1: uh, I, I mean, you know, omitted is frankly, I don't know. Uh, perhaps I'm not very good at spotting uh, gaps, but um, um, I think things that probably have been under under researched or under developed. It seems to me. It seems to me, in a way, that there are two things that matter a lot, uh, which have been under understudied. One is very macro, to my mind. It's really institutional context. It's how the institutions of a particular environment, of a particular country, um, of a particular uh, phenomenon, of the institutions guiding a particular phenomenon actually work. Um, so I don't think we can. I know that in some way we should. We should thrive for context- free universal theories. At the same time, I think we lose a lot by forgetting about context and not paying attention, enough attention to context. Um, and the other one is very micro. It's almost at the opposite end of the of the macro micro spectrum, which is uh, I was struck when I was young, I was struck by by when I was a young student, I was struck by something that was one of Michel Crozier's uh, mottos. I was not quite a student, but I was working with his disciples. And Crozier was always saying, you know, organizations don't have strategies, people do. Uh, and I think we sometimes briefly the organization, or we sometimes lose track of, of the individual in action within the organization. Uh, so I try again, when I was saying earlier, I try to observe people at work, if I can, uh, I, we need to we need to come back to the level to come down to the level of the individual actor, not to treat the firm as a rational entity, a rational, a rational actor, but to basically try to open it up and understand the people within it.
0: About uh, scholarship, uh, creativity in scholarship, intellectual curiosity. Uh, what does your mind think of uh, when it wanders freely in the state of idle curiosity? How do these <clears throat> interesting uh, creative ideas come about.
1: Yes. Um, yes. Sorry, I'm just posing one second, but I mean, one, one observation obviously, which is, which is just a, a, hopefully a short term one is, right now I find the question difficult real time because I can't help being very worried about Ukraine. So when my mind wanders, I wonder about the atrocities in Ukraine. Um, In peaceful times, I would say I've started to practice drawing. I did not do it when I was young, but I'm drawing and painting. And I find it remarkable. It's an intense effort. It's tiring, but it's a remarkable way to take your mind off some intellectual issues, works very differently, and then come back to them. So this this, uh, shifting between shifting between the kind of work we typically do as colors and shifting what I try to do as uh, someone who draws, someone who observes. I also take photographs uh, fairly often. So I look at from landscapes to buildings to people and so on, trying to basically do something which is eyes and mind mobilizing, but not intellectual. And I think that helps. that to me, I believe that helps some, perhaps creativity is a big word, but uh, but it helps me make sense of things, perhaps discover some, uh, some linkages and so on. The other thing is, uh, I'm a big data fan, data in the broadest sense, I mean, interview notes, uh, videos and so on, as well as quite quantitative data. And I think if you if you go if you if you if you dive into data often enough and you do it in a kind of iterative recursive way, so you don't jump into conclusion, but you go through several loops of trying to develop conceptualizations and then going back to data and so on, that is a way to it's not again, it's not exactly creativity, but that's a way to tease out some interesting things from that data and perhaps to add some things conceptually. If you could Thank you. If you could look
0: into a crystal ball and say the next five to ten years of the IB international strategy, international competitive dynamics in Europe, in the world, uh, regionally or locally, globally, uh, what's the next big area that we should be uh, looking into or uh, worried about?
1: I mean, in some ways, and I don't know whether it's going to be a return to where we were, uh, say, 50 years ago or 40 years ago, or or it's going to be different. But I think, and it's it's probably obvious. So I'm sorry for starting by stating the obvious. But the form of liberal globalization that we have seen progressing for the last at least 20, 30 years or more, um, I think is going to be challenged. It it was already being challenged by social inequalities and. And other factors prior to COVID. I think COVID has created the, has led the immediate environment, be it national or even local, become more important. Um, And my sense is I don't have no idea what, I don't claim to have any idea about what will be the consequences of the war in Ukraine. But I think one consequence will be that companies will be more risk averse. Will be less willing to build or to remain in global supply chains. You look at the dependency today of the global semiconductor industry on Taiwan, and that's probably a forerunner of moves in other industries as well. So the, global, the, the globalization we have seen is going probably to, to be uh, to go into reverse, to be reduced, or perhaps to know, whether it's going to be regional, like many people argue, whether it's going to be more local, I don't know. Uh, But it's clear that the dynamics of the international system, or perhaps the nature of the international system, are going to change. Uh, I think that's one. And and, And the consequence of this, as I see it, is that when companies moved from being multinational to being like the companies like Sumantra Goshal and I and others were studying matrix organizations, complex, global, and local at the same time, to becoming even more global and more globally run with global functions and global organizations. I have the recent, there was an article on the evolution of Unilever recently, which shows this. Um, the, the, the traditional general management skills or multinational management skills were in less demand. I think we could almost say. Uh, Pankaj years ago at this formula of the semi-globalized world and saying multinational management belongs to the semi-globalized world. And I think the, the, the world had shifted toward globalized and now it's shifting, it's shifting back towards semi-globalized. And management is actually more complex. I think the managers I was researching and interviewing in the 19, late 1970s, 1980s, had more demanding tasks in front of them than global managers have had for the past few years in the past few years. So I think there will be a, a, a move back to probably giving more attention to the work of managers in multinational companies or in semi-globalized companies.
0: I mean, you mentioned uh, something interesting, liberal, liberal globalization and the impact of it uh, going forward. Uh, there was an interview a couple of years ago at Chicago, uh, Milsheimer. Hirschheimer uh, and Posner, they were having two series of multiple day interviews at the University of Chicago. Um, and they actually saw it as a social construction like or re-engineering of the, of the societies. Uh, I'm really curious about what you just said about li- uh, liberal globalization and, uh, about the culture of IB research and evolution that we are going to be I just started mentioning about it from 1970s, 1980s. Uh, from where we were, 1970s, uh, where are we headed to, uh, going forward, the evolution of IB, given that these ideologies are changing, uh, moving away from globalization to more nationalism, and uh, some of my uh, guests here uh, that they are either on the globalization side very much uh, hoping that globalization is going to increase uh, even further or they are on the other side they are saying oh, actually it's going to be just downhill from now on what's your take on it
1: well, I, I think globalization is going to be i think the move toward greater freer global uh, world, a greater freer global world is going to go into reverse. How far it will go into reverse, I don't know, but it was clear already with with Donald Trump and trade wars. It is clear with COVID, it is likely to be a further consequence of the point I was making about companies are going to be more risk-averse following COVID, following Ukraine, and so on. Uh, so I think there will be a move there will be a move backward uh, from, from globalization. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, global companies or multinational companies will continue to exist. So, and and, and uh, in a way, I was just raising the issue of saying there will probably be a, again a greater demand for international management skills as such. Um, that that is both an opportunity for research. It's perhaps an opportunity for our teaching, uh, and. That, uh, and, and, and my own experience is managers, managers in multinational companies when I was teaching them or working with them in the 80s when I started, uh, were more sophisticated people than their counterparts today, just because I think they had more experience of different contexts and different uh, roles in multinational companies.
0: Interesting. Uh, so you're saying that
1: they lost the complexity complexity decreased mm-hmm. i don't think they and therefore the need for it was less now perhaps you can argue that with if there is and there is greater volatility greater instability more surprises and very high interdependence globally then you have all the ingredients of complexity coming to play again and that has been taking place for the past few years and i think it's going to take to to be even more more significant in the in the coming years.
0: Okay, okay. Yves, uh, uh, what was the best advice you received when you were going through your education, your, your training?
1: Ah <laughs> I, I think I think it it was probably coming from I mean you know my my, uh, my mentor at Harvard was say was Joe Bauer. And, and Joe Bauer was very influential in me. And I think he gave me some very valuable advice saying he did not quite frame it that way. Now it would be called mechanisms. You have to understand the mechanisms by which organizations um, by which organizations operate or by which people operate in organizations. He was using different terminology around strategic context and structural context and so on. But essentially, the rules of the game within the organization and the mechanism. And to some extent, and interestingly enough, they became friends with each other. Um, I had the same learning from Michel Crozier in a French context, the same kind of learning. Um, Except with Crozier, I, was, I never was a student. I, but I worked closely with some of the people who had been his students, who were colleagues at INSEAD and elsewhere.
0: I see. Uh, if you were to give advice to junior faculty or PhD students uh, for a successful career such as yours, uh, what's the best advice that you would give them?
1: Well, well I think today, what, what I find remarkable, and again, this is, uh, this is someone who has 50, almost 50 years of experience with, with this. When I started research methods in international business, in fact, research methods in business in general, were very underdeveloped, um, so you had just uh, traditional. You had basically people who were doing cases, la Harvard Business School, nineteen sixties or seventies, um, and you had people who were doing relatively simple-minded econometric analysis or statistical surveys and so on. The most sophisticated work was being done by by Ray Vernon and the team around him, who were looking at the the spread of uh, multinational companies from the US, from Europe and so on. What what I'm struck with is that a lot of scholars have given a lot of attention to qualitative research methods in the past past couple of decades, perhaps the past 20 years. I find it very significant that the, the Jibs Decade Award was given to a paper on basically qualitative research methodologies this year. So my first advice would be would be really study research methods thoroughly and, and on a wide on a wide range. You, know, I, you don't need to master all because you cannot. Uh, but even if you are doing mathematical modeling, don't ignore the people who do ethnographies and read some about ethnographies and, uh, and, and this kind of work. if you are doing... Uh, case studies look at large sample statistical data and so on and so on so you see just trying to get a, a rounded understanding of multiple research methods which which were very underdeveloped when i was a student and have become i think so much more sophisticated now that they are really uh, they, they are really they're very helpful hmm. i okay. would also borrow an advice from jim march actually which i found very very interesting um he used to say, be a scholar for the fun of fun or the interest of being a scholar and, and, and enjoy scholarship. Uh, and then you will see you will write papers naturally. So put scholarship before being desperate for publication. What I see among students, given the pressures of, of uh, promotion criteria, tenure criteria, and so on, there's a tendency to. What I see as being you, know, you, you put the, you, 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 you put publishing first and doing research second, or perhaps you put, you put the cart before the horse if you want that metaphor. And, and people are very worried with publication. Um, they are not so concerned about becoming a, uh, becoming a successful uh, scholar enjoying the work of scholarship. So, I think that the advice from Jim is very well, is very, very profound. You just say, you know, be a scholar and enjoy being a scholar, and then publications will come. Don't put it the other way around.
0: But there's also a time factor. I mean, uh, yes, is right, and you touched on a great point. But uh, I'm thinking about our new current PhD students on the job market. Uh, you know, when you apply for a job, uh, they are looking at how many publications we have. I know, So, interesting. Let me ask you the reverse uh, version of this question. What, what are some of the big mistakes that you see people make? Uh, things that they should avoid uh, doing, uh, wrong things to do in the field, in the profession?
1: Well, there are some. Again, you know, I mean, by and large, I esteem and I respect and and even I admire a number of my colleagues. So I'm not someone who's going to harp upon these are bad things to do and these are terrible mistakes and so on. Um, what I see sometimes as issues today are twofold. It seems to me, I mean, at least two come to mind. One is to try to extract from a particular. Concept or a particular theory, more than it can deliver. In a sense, you know, for instance, if I look at international business, there has been for a number of years this piggybacking on transaction cost economics. Um, transaction cost economics are very good to justify the boundaries of a firm, basically to say what should be externalized, what needs to be internalized, and so on. That works um, to tell you how to run relationship within the firm, they make a series of assumptions which are essentially against collaboration. I was, I was saying earlier, a firm is all about collaboration. And transaction cost economics do not encourage collaboration. Um, so I think that's one, that one point of you know using the wrong framework for trying to go after a particular topic. That framework may be powerful and respected and well established, but it is good for something else. Uh, I think that's one. Um, that's one uh, one mistake. The other one that I see often is confusing the map and the territory. The map is a conceptual apparatus, like a map, but the map is not the territory. The territory is real. The map is a representation of the territory. Um, and sometimes, and sometimes, you know, we get carried out, carried. But is the right word? Carried carried away. By our conceptualizations into almost believing that the conceptualization is not a representation of reality, necessarily simplified and schematized but is the reality itself and I think if we don't if we lose that distinction, then we are often a tangent i mean we are we are not our it's it's one of the reasons I believe you know if you look at it today, um, as compared again to many years ago, it used to be quite If you were were smart enough to show why it was interesting and so on, it used to be relatively easy for us to get access to big multinational companies and do research. They would open their doors and say, go around and interview 200 people if you wish and so on, Uh, so long as you don't disturb too much and so long as you don't require require money to do it, we'll let you do it. Um, I hear my junior colleagues, and I'm probably right, saying it has become much more difficult. And I think partly, part of this is that the, the, the relevance to management practice and the mutual respect between practitioners, between managers and scholars, somehow has been, has been lost. I think one thing I learned from CK Prahalad early on, mainly from CK Prahalad early on, is you need to respect and, and, and try to develop empathy for managers and their predicament and their situations. Uh, and my sense is, we don't do enough of that.
0: Interesting. This was interesting. This was very helpful. Uh, for the sake of time, what's the question that I should have asked you, but haven't.
1: <laughs> I thought, well, actually, I mean, this is also a good, uh, I thought you would ask me, What who did I learn the most from? Okay. And that's, that's a nice way to end, that it. it's a nice sequel to what we were discussing a minute ago because um, first of all, I, I mean I'm a bit unusual, I guess, among scholars. Uh, because one, I've learned a lot from managers. I have found senior managers or managers in general, um, so long as you can adopt the right language to interact with them, uh, they are actually very smart, thoughtful, and careful. Uh so so um when I go back and I think about all these, actually, I've kept most of them. When I look at the interview notes, I accumulated over decades. I think I learned a hell of a lot from these meetings and interviews and so on. Um, and also, some of it's interesting. You know, a couple of examples, personal examples. Um, I did this work with with a, with Mikko Kosonen, a Finn who was uh, the head of strategy for Nokia, and then. Uh, and basically became a co-researcher. We wrote a book together, and he was really a closet academic. Uh, I was amazed. Um, he asked me, how can I learn about all this? I Basically, I was lazy. I sent him the link to the whole bunch of PhD readings in strategic management that we have, you know, dozens and dozens, perhaps hundreds of articles, and I was not terribly hopeful. And At the end of the summer, he Came back to me and he had read them all and he had made sense of most of them and so on. So he was a close academic, really. He had spent his vacation reading uh, academic journals. Um, and another one that there is a, another example like this: someone named Jose Santos, uh, who was a CEO of a company and went all the way to now becoming an academic. And also, I wrote some articles and books, uh, had a book with him. So I found that. These people were in between or were in, in, in movement between management and academia are actually people you can learn from a lot. Um, and I was also, I mean, I was very fortunate in a sense because, you know, a lot of, I mean, I'm, I, had, I, had the, the, I had the good fortune to work with CK Pralad, and it was totally serendipitous. We just happened to be, Harvard allocated us to the same PhD cubicle. So we found ourselves like, you know, face to face, one meter apart, sharing the same tiny office. And obviously we started chatting and we became good friends and co-authors and co-researchers and so on. Um, I also worked with many others. So in a sense, I was, I think I had the good fortune to meet very interesting people. And, uh, and also what I learned about organizations. Again, I mentioned Joe Bauer earlier. I mentioned Crozier earlier. Um, mm-hmm. There was someone else, Giro Nonaka, and all of his work on not so much Japanese companies per se, actually, but um, the nature of company and knowledge in companies and so on. I mean, I again had the good fortune to be invited at some conferences in Japan when I was young uh, and to meet Jiro and, uh, and people who were working with him. So I learned from a lot of people. And I'm very sad in a sense. I mean, sometimes I, I uh, you know, Samantra so Goshal disappeared early. Gunnar Hedlund, who was also one of the forerunners, also died very young. He died of brain cancer. He was not even 40 or perhaps just 40. C.K died somewhat prematurely. I mean very prematurely. He could have been productive today, but he died a dozen years ago. Um, so unfortunately, many of the, many of the several, not, several of the leading scholars in management passed away in a, in a premature way. But I learned a lot from all these people.
0: Now I learned from you. Thank you so much for this interview. This was very interesting. Uh, Thank you for your time. Uh, I'm sure the audience will agree with me. This was very helpful. Okay, thank you. Thank you.